0: section eight of chapters on evolution by andrew wilson this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three constitution of the animal and plant kingdoms part three if we select any type from the lowest to the highest we may readily discover that its included animals exhibit amongst themselves a connected relationship such as the mere fact of their bodies being built upon one and the same plan would of itself be sufficient to suggest amongst the articulate animals for instance this relationship is plainly seen and it is no less evident amongst the vertebrates and mollusks as will be more plainly shown in succeeding chapters why it may be asked should the segments or joints of the lobster's body and of the insect frame be constructed on one and the same plan or again why should the appendages of the bodies of these animals which resemble each other far more closely in the early stages than in the adults present a striking correspondence of type that is only marked by the modifications they undergo through adaptation to varied ends why again should the mouth parts of a butterfly adapted as every one knows for suction be formed of essentially similar and corresponding parts to those which are found in the biting mouth of a beetle and why should the arm of man the wing of the bird or bat the forelimb of the horse the paddle of the whale or dolphin and the forelimb of the frog as will be more fully shown in a future chapter be constructed on one and the same type the answer to these pertinent inquiries can only be found in some conception which demands and postulates some intelligible relationship between the varied and yet fundamentally similar parts mr spencer speaking of similar facts in the structure of articulate animals asks what now can be the meaning of this community of structure among these hundreds of thousands of species filling the air burrowing in the earth swimming in the water creeping about among the seaweed and having such enormous differences of size outline and substance as that no community would be suspected between them why under the down covered body of the moth and under the hard wing cases of the beetle should there be discovered the same number of divisions as in the calcareous framework of the lobster. It cannot be by chance, continues Mr. Spencer, that there exist just twenty segments in all these hundreds of thousands of species. There is no reason to think that it was necessary in the sense that no other number would have made a possible organism. And to say that it is the result of design, to say that the creator followed this pattern throughout merely for the purpose of maintaining the pattern, is to assign a motive which, if avowed by a human being, we should call whimsical. No rational interpretation of this and hosts of like morphological truths can be given except by the hypothesis of evolution. And from the hypothesis of evolution, they are corollaries. If organic forms have arisen from common stocks by perpetual divergences and redivergences, if they have continued to inherit, more or less clearly, the characters of ancestral races, then there will naturally result these communities of fundamental structure among extensive assemblages of creatures that have severally become modified in countless ways and degrees in adaptation to their respective modes of life, Choosing thus the doctrine of evolution, we can clearly enough account for the general likeness exhibited by the various members of an animal type the animals of each type resemble each other because they are descended from a common stock descent with modification is the key which unlocks whatever mysteries hedge about the fundamental likeness we see in each type of animal life in a future chapter we shall endeavour to trace the evidence which has already been gathered in favour of the accumulation of transitional forms between the main divisions of the vertebrate type as illustrative of missing links at large in the present instance we may sum up the testimony which tends to support and prove the biological declaration that between the types themselves there exist intermediate forms the presence of which tends to substitute the idea of the gradual and continuous nature of animal development as opposed to that of interrupted or special creations For example, it is a comparatively easy matter to demonstrate that the gulf between vertebrate animals and their invertebrate neighbors has been largely bridged over, so that today no competent naturalist doubts the connection of the highest type of animal life with lower forms. The evidence of such a connection will be more fully detailed hereafter, but it is permissible to refer to its main details in the present instance. The vertebrate animals have already been shown to be those which alone possess a spine enclosing the nervous system, and which, moreover, of all animals, are those having the heart lowest and possessing never more than four limbs, these latter appendages being developed in pairs. But when we pass to the lower confines of this group, we discover that the lowest fish, the lancelet, or amphioxus, presents us with a clear-bodied organism attaining a length of only an inch or two and destitute of nearly all the special belongings of the fishes themselves in place of a spine and skeleton it possesses a soft cellular rod the notochord such as every other vertebrate develops in early life but which in all save a few fishes is replaced by the backbone it breathes in an enlargement of the throat its nervous system lying upon the notochord is a mere nervous cord destitute of a brain. Its eyes are mere specks of color, and it wants a heart, kidneys, spleen, and also the sympathetic nervous system found in all other vertebrates. When, therefore, we attempt to place the lancelet in an animal type, we are met by the difficulty that whilst in the possession of certain important characters it is undoubtedly a vertebrate, in the want of other characters it appears to lie outside that type. Again we discover an equally important fact when we learn that the lancelet presents distinct affinities with the sea squirts or tunicates which belong to the molluscoid type, and the commoner species of which may be compared, each to a veritable bag or leather bottle, firmly attached to rocks, shells, and like objects. These likenesses, to be more fully discussed hereafter, in chapter 9, are seen not merely when the structure of the adult sea squirt and lancelet are compared, but are still more clearly discernible when the development of the two animals is studied. The lancelet, in short, resembles a fish or lower vertebrate, whose development has been arrested, so to speak, and it is equally interesting to discover that there exist certain sea squirts which, in their special features, approach very nearly to the lancelet, and in which the notochord, long supposed to be the special possession of the young of vertebrate animals, remains, as in the lancelet, persistent throughout life. Thus the lancelet remains before us, constituting in every sense of the term, a link between vertebrates and invertebrates. It agrees wholly neither with the highest type nor with the molluscoids or sea squirts themselves, but exhibits a series of characters strictly intermediate between the two types we may readily enough understand, on these grounds, why this little clear-bodied animal, which at first was regarded as a worm, and then as a kind of slug, should, from the peculiarity of its position as the apparent root of the vertebrate type, have been styled, next to man, the most important vertebrate. As Professor Huxley has pertinently remarked, in 1859 there appeared to be a very sharp and clear hiatus between vertebrated and invertebrated animals not only in their structure but what was more important in their development i do not think that we even yet know the precise links of connection between the two but the investigations of kowaluski and others upon the development of amphioxus and the tunicata prove beyond a doubt that the differences which were supposed to constitute a barrier between the two are non-existent there is no longer any difficulty in understanding How the vertebrate type may have arisen from the invertebrate, though the full proof of the manner in which the transition was actually effected may still be lacking, For these weighty reasons, the vertebrate type, in the tabular view of the types of animal life, is represented as having its root laid within the sea squirt, or tunicate, line of descent. If at random we selected other types of animal life, we should similarly discover that they exhibit more or less distinct relationships with other divisions or plans of the kingdom. The molluscoids or sea squirts themselves, for example, appear to be related through a curious worm-like creature named Belenoglosus to the worms on the one hand and to the starfish group Echinodermata on the other or if we select the last-named group itself, we may discover that the starfishes and sea urchins are not more isolated from other types than are the vertebrates. The starfishes, in fact, present many points of affinity to certain worm-like forms, and their development, to be hereafter alluded to, clearly relates them, in the eyes of the naturalists, to lower types of animal life. Again, the lowest animals, or protozoa, appear to be linked to the silenterate type, or that of the zoophytes, corals, sea anemones, etc., through the sponges, which unite in a most characteristic fashion the features of the lowest forms with organisms of a higher grade. And lastly, as amongst the worms we find the roots of the starfish type, so in that class we also discover the beginnings of the great articulate plan, which possesses the insects, crustaceans, and allied animals as its chief representatives as has well been remarked quote it may reasonably be doubted whether any form of animal life remains to be discovered which will not be found to accord with one or other of the common plans now known but at the same time this increase of knowledge has abolished the broad lines of demarcation which formerly appeared to separate one common plan from another unquote. Lastly, it will be shown in future chapters that the various animal types start in their development from a common basis and agree in the earlier and essential stages of their progress towards their adult forms. There is a literally amazing likeness to be discerned between the early stages of the development of many animals which, as adults and as belonging to different types, present not the slightest resemblances to one another. Each animal, in fact, traced backwards in its history, approaches the earlier stages of all the rest. That is to say, all start from a common morphological type, and even in their extremest divergence, retain traces of their primitive unity. Such unity will form the special subject of the succeeding chapter, when the common and universal matter of life, or protoplasm, is discussed in detail. It may thus be demonstrated as a fact and as a matter removed entirely from the domain of theory and hypothesis, that whilst the great world of animal life exhibits a constitution, in the study of which its component elements are seen to be resolvable into several distinct types or plans of structure, the development of these types has followed a pathway and progress comparable to the growth of a tree. The connections between types and the existence of intermediate and transitional groups of animals, apparently belonging to one type when studied from one aspect, but exhibiting the closest alliance with another type or plan when different details of structure are regarded, prove in the clearest fashion that continuous development has been the way of life in the animal world. Whilst, lastly, the bare fact that as we trace the histories of all the types backward towards their early life, the likeness grows in exactitude until it merges in absolute identity, constitutes in itself a detail which is all eloquent in favor of the idea that only on one theory can the entire constitution of the animal world be explained. That idea, it is needless to remark, is embodied in the theory of evolution, Which postulates descent from a common root or stock, with subsequent modification as the only satisfactory explanation of the constitution of the animal world. The constitution of the plant world may be briefly alluded to by way of close to these observations, because the issues of botanical science tend to support, in the plainest fashion, the deductions and generalizations just detailed concerning the origin of the types of animal life. The variety of plant life is not less profuse than the diversity presented by the tribes of animals. But, like their neighbor organisms, the plants exhibit certain broad types, to one or other of which it is possible to refer any single plant or group. If a table of the plant types be constructed, it would assume a form such as that indicated. At the top are 1. Thalophytes, for example, algae or seaweeds etc and fungi two bryophyta for example liverworts and mosses these plants are composed of cells only these constitute the cryptograms or flowerless plants next are three pteridophytes for example ferns horsetails and club mosses these also are cryptograms or flowerless plants four phanerogams Higher plants. Plants composed of cells and vessels. A. Gymnosperms or those having no seed vessels, for example, firs, pines, etc. B. Angiosperms are those having distinct seed vessels, which include A. Monocotyledons, for example, palm, lily, and B. Dicotyledons, for example, oak, primrose, etc. These constitute the phanerogams or flowering plants. Discarding all botanical technicalities, save those absolutely necessary, the types of plant life may be readily enough appreciated. If we examine such a plant as an oak, a primrose, a buttercup, a palm, a lily, or indeed any ordinary member of the plant series, we may discover that it possesses conspicuous flowers, and that accordingly it may be distinguished from such plants as the ferns, mosses, and fungi, in which no flowers are developed. Such a state of matter suffices, along with other and equally distinctive points of structure, to separate the higher plants, or phanerogams from the lower or flowerless plants, cryptogams. But selecting the flowering and higher plants themselves, we may readily discover that certain highly distinct types are represented within their limits. Thus, when we watch the development of an oak, a bean, a primrose, or a buttercup, for example, We discover that the young plant develops or possesses two primitive leaves named seed leaves, the cotyledons of the botanist. Again, such plants have their flower parts arranged in fours or fives, and whilst their stems grow outwards, the leaves present us with the network of veins so well seen in the skeleton leaves. These characters suffice to group the highest plants into a type known as that of the dicotyledons. If now we examine a palm, a lily, a tulip, or a hyacinth, we shall find that only one cotyledon or seed leaf is developed by the young plant. Furthermore, the leaves have parallel veins, a conformation well illustrated in the tulip leaf and the onion leaf, for example. Again, the stem of these plants is an inward growing structure, and the parts of the flowers are developed in threes or in multiples of that number hence a second type of plant is constituted by the palms grasses lilies and their allies and to this type the name of monocotyledons is applied a third type of plant is also included in the group of flowering plants this latter type is constituted by the conifers or cone-bearing plants such as the larches firs cedars cycads araucarias, cypresses junipers etc and presents in many respects clear evidence of its title to be regarded as a highly distinctive and specialized group of plants. The chief characters of these plants consist in the peculiarity of their flowering arrangements, which are represented in the well-known cones. Again, the seeds are not contained within a seed vessel, as in ordinary plants, such as the pea, but are born on the cones. Hence arises the technical name of gymnosperms, naked-seeded, applied to the pines, firs, and their allies. The foregoing types constitute collectively the flowering plants of the botanist. Ranking below these plants, however, is a number of types containing plant organisms of highly characteristic nature. Thus, the ferns, horsetails, equiceti, and club-mosses, or lycopods, form one section of the flowerless plants. In these forms the true plant arises not directly from a seed as in the higher orders of plant life but from a curious leaf-like structure called a prothallus, which in its turn arises from the spore or germ of the parent plant thus from the spore of a fern falling from the back of its frond springs the leaf-like prothallus. on the underside of this body are developed organs giving rise in turn to the young fern which is thus developed intermediately and indirectly from its parent. This character, united with others, which need not be specified here, serves to render the fern type clear and individualized. It may be added, however, that the stem in such plants grows chiefly at its summit, and that its leaves or fronds, which bear the reproductive organs, exhibit a forked arrangement of their veins. Equally flowerless with the ferns and their neighbors are plants which, however, rank below these well-known forms in the botanical scale. Thus the muciniae, or mosses and liverworts, appear as a distinct type of lower plants, which are composed solely of cells, and which do not possess true roots comparable with those of higher plants. And in the lowest of the plant world, we meet with the seaweeds, fungi, and a host of microscopic plants, equally flowerless equally cellular in composition and which moreover do not develop the stem and leaves of the mosses many of these lower plants are represented by single cells the well-known diatoms the yeast plant and many others illustrating such a constitution whilst a mushroom or other fungus is simply a mass of cells and nothing more these details prove that the plant world exhibits a constitution in which types appear as prominently as in the animal kingdom. Furthermore, it can readily be shown that the plant types are not more distinctly separated from one another than are those of the animal world. It is demonstrable, for instance, that the algae or seaweeds are connected by intermediate forms with the lichens and fungi, whilst no botanist questions the idea that the ferns, Club mosses and their neighbors lead the way from the lower or flowerless plants to the gymnosperms or firs, pines, etc., amongst the flowering plants. Between the monocotyledons and dicotyledons, again, there are obvious links, and hence we discover that the whole plant kingdom may be regarded as being bound together after the actual fashion of its own product seen in the tree which, whilst possessing its individual parts, likewise exhibits a continuity of development that forms one of the chief characteristics alike of the single organism and of its relationship with its neighbors. In the lowest deeps of plant life we may discover organisms which possess at the best a doubtful title to be regarded as the objects of botanical study. In the animal world, likewise are included lower organisms which may be regarded in certain aspects as possessing true relationships with plants modern biology today frankly admits its inability to pronounce whether certain lowest forms of life are animals or plants certain monads for example consisting each of a speck of protoplasm provided with the microscopic whip-tails exhibit a highly confusing identity of structure and function which renders their exact nature indeterminable or at least Highly doubtful. Hence, we discover that apparently at the lowest confines of the animal and plant realms, we enter a biological no man's land, whereof the included inhabitants may legitimately claim relationship with both kingdoms. They exhibit in this latter respect, in the eyes of the biologist, the actual survivals of that early epoch in the history of life's development when the specialized kingdoms of animals and plants were not and when existence passed placidly along the common lines which were soon to diverge into the two great series of living beings that environ our footsteps today. The great lesson which a study of the Constitution of the Living Worlds is calculated to teach the independent observer may be summed up in the contention that the entire subject testifies to the continuous and connected nature of the development of life at large. The beginnings of higher and lower life alike are represented by humble stages, wherein specks of protoplasm, or at the most, simple cells, discharge all the functions of existence. From such simple beginnings the highest being is developed. The difference between the highest and lowest organism is therefore not so much one of kind as of the degree of perfection to which elaboration and development has carried the living form. We may be unable definitely to indicate why one organism speeds along this pathway to assume a place in one type, or why another, apparently identical in its early life with the first, should develop into a widely different being. But beyond such questions lies the biological surety that to understand the way of the becoming of both animal and plant is to deny any independence of creation and to assert that unless the phenomena of life be without meaning, all nature testifies to continuous development as the main feature of the living constitution. To collate the evidence which widely different branches of inquiry supply in favor of this view is the chief aim of the succeeding chapters. But Mr. Spencer's words may be once again quoted by way of showing succinctly and plainly the general conclusion of the present study. The general truths of morphology, says Spencer, thus coincide in their implications. Unity of type maintained under extreme dissimilarities of form and mode of life is explicable as resulting from descent with modification, but is otherwise inexplicable. The likeness, disguised by unlikenesses, which the comparative anatomist discovers between various organs in the same organism are worse than meaningless if it be supposed that organisms were severally framed as we now see them, but they fit in quite harmoniously with the belief that each kind of organism is a product of accumulated modifications upon modifications. End of Section 8 Chapter 3 Constitution of the Animal and Plant Kingdoms Part 3